When the internet was first invented, it was supposed to democratize information. Now, everything's owned by a handful of megacorporations. Can Web3 decentralize the internet? And also, do I need to learn what a blockchain is? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Pugh. On today's episode, we talk to Paris Marks of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast about Web 3.0, which some are saying will lead us to a more secure, private, and decentralized internet. But others see it as just a buzzword and worry about the environmental impact of Web 3 technologies like blockchain. If you enjoy this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us today, Paris. Paris is here to discuss Web 3.0, your favorite topic, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I just love discussing this because it's. I'm just so happy that we're moving to the next stage of the web that's just going to like empower us and decentralize everything and make it just a wonderful place. <laughs> That that sounds insincere, but it's actually like the selling point that everyone has for Web 3.0. So let's let's get into it a little bit. Um, Kristen is coming in cold. She doesn't know uh, internet. (laughs) I still use Minitel. (laughs) We had to wait for her dial up. (laughs) Kristen's actually connected through a traditional phone line and, you know, we've just brought her in. Yeah. I, I audio conferenced in. Yeah. <laughs> All of her notes came by carrier pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> Old traditional bell landline. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Uh, and, th- and then my knowledge is I've done a little bit of research beforehand. I've been kind of like vaguely aware of blockchain since, what, 2010. I was working at a computer store and a bunch of my friends started mining cryptocurrencies. And so they were trying to explain it to me. So like people have been trying to explain this to me for a decade. Uh, (laughs) And I sat down with someone last week who works in the Web 3.0 space. And I was like, please explain this to me as though I am a child. And I am still, you guys are going to listen to me unpack things out loud for the first times. Because <laughs> even like, even just like right before we started recording, I was still like reading up definitions and being like, wait a second, that's actually kind of cool. So there's a lot here. Let's start with what Web 1.0 is. Paris, do you want to take a crack at that? Sure. Yeah. And like, I'll just say to pick up on what you were saying, like, it is very confusing and it is very complex. And I think that's part of the reason that like Web3 or, you know, one of many reasons that it really failed to kind of connect with people because it is so just incredibly confusing. And so, yeah, it's no surprise to me that, you know, you've had some trouble kind of wrapping your head around it. One of the things that's kind of stood out to me with the podcast is like, it feels like every year I'm having to learn about a new industry or a new sector because tech is like trying to move into it and like revolutionize it or whatever. And so like last year, I really had to learn about like the financial industry and all that kind of stuff because this is what cryptocurrency was really involved in. And so there was a lot of like learning new terms and and yeah, so I picked up a bit. So hopefully I can relay that to you. Um, to your actual <laughs> <laughs> to your actual question, um, Web 1.0 is, you know, I think it's I think it's important to say that like when we talk about Web 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, these are more marketing terms than like you know necessarily an actual reflection of larger changes. Like there's still a lot of things that stay the same between these different you know supposed phases of the internet. 
but web 1.0 was considered like the early web, you know, back when you had really kind of more basic websites where it was more common for, you know, general users to like set up their own web page. It was before major social media platforms really kind of took over. And a lot of our, a lot of the way that we use the web was then kind of like filtered through them. The kind of general idea or like the the kind of idealized notion of what web 1.0 is, is it's like this kind of decentralized web before the major corporations took it over. And again, that's not totally accurate because even back then there's AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe and all those sorts of things that are still really big back then. Does that give you a general idea, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. And I mean, like, most of what I was reading and what my friend was basically saying is, like, it's the read-only web. You can't interact on it. You can just see what people put up there. My first web page myself was a, a, a website about giant cats that my dad <laughs> helped me make. And it was just a bunch of information that I had copied from other websites and pasted onto mine with really nice pictures of cats. <laughs> that makes sense. Back when, back when I was, like, first making websites, you know, back in what would it have been maybe the the late nine no probably the early 2000s i would say um you know i was making websites about like my dog and like websites about neopets <laughs> and like shit like that so yeah i get it oh man remember <laughs> oh, neopets. neopets yes yeah. <laughs> yeah the thing about this topic like when you start talking about web 1.0 it really like it's such a nostalgia hit. And you're like, oh, yeah, like that was so long ago. <laughs> we are so old. Yeah. I, I worry that like my problem with Web 3.0 isn't that there's anything inherently wrong with it. It's just that I'm too old to understand new things now. <laughs> uh, I remember being young and like having to ask my mom, like if I could get on the dial up Internet because like, you know, <laughs> then the phone line will get cut yes. off because you are on the Internet <laughs> to like go and look up like Digimon pictures and Pokemon pictures and shit like that to Print off, like, you know. You had to print off. You yeah, put up in your locker. It's cool. yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Web 1.0, and then um, my understanding of Web 2.0 is that's when you could really start to interact online. Like, of course, in Web 1.0, you had like chat rooms, but for the most part, you know, if you wanted to do online shopping, you were sending an email based on a catalog that you were reading online. And now Web 2.0 is moving into that more interactive space. Um, but maybe you can describe it a little bit better, Paris. Yeah, you know, I think to a certain degree that that's accurate. Um, like, you know, I would just add again, these are fuzzy definitions, right? It's not like there was no kind of interactivity on the web before that. It's not like there wasn't things that were built to be able to have those kinds of functionalities. It just wasn't as common, right? Because um, it took more energy, more work to actually put together than what it would take later on as these things kind of evolve. You know, of course, the other piece of that is what's typically associated with Web 2.0 is the rise of like the platforms, right? The internet platforms, your, uh, you know, MySpace is certainly like an earlier example of this, but uh, Google becoming more dominant, Facebook emerging, you know, using Amazon as the means through which like you buy things online. And so you move away from there being like, you know, in the idealized form of how this is told, you move away from this kind of decentralized web where a lot of people have their own little web pages and things like that. And you're moving on to this set of large corporate platforms. And instead of, you know, having your personal website, you have a Facebook page or a Facebook profile or something like that, right? And so most of what you're interacting with when you go online is not this kind of random assortment of web pages that you're trying to find or keeping track of through bookmarks or trying to look up through like various search engines. 
but rather you're going to these pre-existing platforms. And usually if you're entering onto like the wider web, you're doing so through links on Facebook or Twitter or, or, or whatever, right? And so this is kind of often marked as, you know, where the internet really went wrong, right? Um, because we had this early web, this kind of idealized um, time during the web when, as I say, people associated it with being decentralized. The corporations hadn't taken over. Um, again, that's not entirely accurate. And then we move into the stage with Web 2.0 where it becomes really oriented around these large corporate platforms that are kind of extracting our data and all these sorts of things, right? Um, so that's kind of the idea of how these how these things kind of evolve and, and how we move from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. And I think it's important to say here that Web 2.0 is very much a marketing term. I believe it's put together by Tim O'Reilly, who's like a big I don't know. He writes a lot about tech. He publishes a lot of books about it, you know, O'Reilly Publishing Company or whatever it's called. And then Web 1.0 is a term that's created to set a distinction between Web 2.0 and Web 1.0. So like, it's not like people were existing, like when the web was first launched, people were like, oh, I'm in Web 1.0 now. And then, you know, when Facebook was launched or became popular or whatever, people were like, oh, this is Web 2.0. It was like those platforms kind of took over and then it was dubbed Web 2.0 by like the industry. And then they were like, well, the period that existed before this was better. And it was Web 1.0 and blah, blah, blah. Right. Okay. So Web 1.0 is like before the internet gets really corporate. Although I guess it was still a little is corporate. In the idealized <laughs> telling of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, if you think about how a lot of people initially got online, it was like, through AOL and stuff like that, right? They got those CDs, they went online, they were using these very kind of corporate web services where you interacted with a bunch of different things by going online. Um, and certainly over time, people migrated more toward the open web, toward, you know, the various, uh, you know, groups of websites and things like that. But even then, it wasn't like there was no online shopping or, or whatever going on online. It was just that, you know, these companies hadn't developed the business models or the technical capabilities to take over a much larger portion of that because it was still early on, right? It was still early in the development of this technology and it still wasn't clear how much money you could make by going online. And that became more clear later as, you know, new capabilities were developed to create better business models to, you know, extract more revenue and profit from online, basically from the internet. I mean, a good example of this would be like the development of the cookie, which follows you around the web, which is like what really made, you know, tracking so powerful. And that's not at all what the developer had in mind. And it's just, it just goes to show like what developers intend and, you know, what their stuff gets used for is not always the same. In my mind, the, the change from web 1.0 to web 2.0 really came when Google started selling our data. And so like, in my mind, that's where I have like the, the line where I'm like, okay, now this is where we stopped owning our own data, which is like what web 3.0 is really about going back to. Well, I, yeah, I guess to a certain degree, it can be framed that way. Like, you know, people have many different ways of describing what is the point where kind of Web 2.0 really emerges, right? And and what defines that? Um, and certainly, you know, using cookies in the way that Google and Facebook and, and what have you have done has been really effective for them in building those business models that I was talking about, right? You know, Google really succeeded in building its analytics platform 
Um, and so, you know, you could put the Google cookie in your individual website or whatever, um, and then you could see how many people were visiting it. But as a result, Google also got all that data. And because its cookies were put on all these different websites are, you know, is, is on most of the websites I would say you visit today, it gets all the data. It understands how many people are visiting what, which websites they're going back and forth between all those different things you know when facebook was really emerging and all of a sudden people would put like facebook like buttons on various web pages and things like that that was a way for facebook to put its cookies on people's websites and so then it could you know get that data back from it as well right and so yeah that that's part of you know what the the move to web 2.0 is about and you know i I guess that is framed as the company's kind of owning our data or at least like being able to capture it so that they can understand what we're doing online. Um, and certainly there's a debate as to whether we should actually be paid for our data, we should, whether we should have more ability to kind of decide when our data is collected and things like that. And those are certainly ongoing debates. And yeah, I think one of the things that Web3 companies or, or promoters would say is that Web3 is about um, giving you back your data or giving you more control over that or or monetizing your data so you get paid for it. And again, whether that is accurate or not, I would probably call in the question. (laughs) Cookies are so complicated. Just to go on a bit of an aside, it's so nice to not have to punch my credit card information in every time I want to pay for stuff. And like, thank you for cookies for that, you know? So like, that's the trade-off is like, you get so much convenience from like, you know, when you leave, you leave a web page and you go back and your items are still in your shopping cart, or it can remember what you searched for last and you can find your hit. Like, it's, it's convenient. That's why we put up with it. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's like, um, you know, if you're on an Apple product or if it's just an iPhone, I can't remember, like you can actually select to block all cookies, um, you know, on like the Safari web browser or whatever. But then you'd find that every time you visited a website, you would have to log in again and and things like that, right? Because you're, what you have done on that website wouldn't be remembered because you there wouldn't be a cookie that was kind of saved on your computer so that, um, you know, the, the memory of your interaction on that website or your login information or whatever is not there. Um, and so those are just some of the trade-offs that you would have to make, like if you wanted to to block the ability for those things to happen. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I always find it really important to kind of be like, this is why we allow it. It's so, it's so convenient and we are creatures of ease. (laughs) Well, and you know, a lot of tech products are sold on convenience, right? Um, If you think about Amazon, like, you know, it's promises that you just order your thing here, we'll give you a, a cheap price and we'll get it to you really quickly. Or, you know, the gig economy is all about getting things to you cheap and quick. And, you know, Google is about convenience, you know, instead of having to search out and, and, find something on your own, just use our web browser and we'll show you the best results. So it saves you time. Like, you know, again and again, these are kind of the promises of a lot of these tech companies. And then, you know, I I think the question is, do they actually deliver the degree of convenience that they promise us? And then um, do they accurately kind of explain to us the trade-offs of that that convenience? Or do they try to hide the actual cost of it, Um, which is obviously something that these companies have, have been known to do? So Web 2.0, the big trends that I'm hearing, please let me know if I'm missing anything, is sort of like the rise of big companies um, or like oligopolistic or like profit-seeking internet. And then also like the rise of like data tracking. Is there anything else that's in Web 2.0 that's a big trend that's important to mention? 
I would say those are key things. And again, um, you know, it's it's in the idealized vision of what these these delineations uh, between the history of the web are. Because as we've been talking about, it wasn't like there weren't big internet companies before web 2.0. It was just they took a different form. And then when you move over to web 2.0, it's kind of a different, uh, it's a different way that they present themselves online and that we and that we use them basically. All right, I'm ready for web 3.0. <laughs> oh boy, Kristen, this one. So I went into this being like, if I cannot explain this to a five-year-old, I don't really understand it. And so I listened to a ton of other podcasts trying to explain it, and I don't think they understand it. So yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think I have a pretty good handle on it now, but Paris, do you want to take a crack at what web 3.0 is purported to be? Okay. Yeah. So it's a big one, right? So I guess, I guess the promise, and, and there are many promises that are, that are made with it, is that, okay, if we're looking back at Web 1.0, this is a period where it's more decentralized, right? Where there's more kind of power in the individual web users' hands, I guess. Um, and then, you know, the web becomes more centralized in the hands of a smaller number of large corporations in the Web 2.0 era. So the people who promote Web 3.0 would say that, in Web 3.0, we are creating these new technological tools, things like blockchains and cryptocurrencies and decentralized autonomous organizations, um, DAOs as they're referred to, NFTs, things like this that will allow us to re-decentralize the internet, to put more power back in the user's hands. And you know these technological tools will enable us to challenge the kind of centralized power of these larger tech corporations and this will, you know, have a ton of benefits because, you know, it, it will be decentralized again, power will be in many hands, et cetera, et cetera. And that will also enable a greater degree of, they would probably say it will allow us to, uh, you know, make more money on the things that we're doing online and also have greater security in doing that. So, you know, if you, sell an NFT to somebody, you know, you create this image, you sell it as an NFT, it's tracked on the blockchain. So instead of in the past, it just goes to whatever person and then they own it. And then, you know, you, you know, there's no connection to it after that. Instead, what would happen in this scenario is that you can sell it. And then because it's tracked on the blockchain through these platforms, if it's sold again, you can get a cut of it or what have you. Um, so that, you know, it's, it's promoted in a way as, you know, we've, we hear a lot about the creator economy. Well, it's good for creators because they will have greater control over their creations and be able to make more money on it down the line or what have you. And it's also about getting greater control over money uh, to a certain degree. So, you know, one of the arguments is that we can't trust the state by controlling currency. You know, this is, again, one of these big hierarchical organizations that, is opposed to our freedom or, or what have you. And so cryptocurrencies allow us to kind of take back the power in the monetary sense. And so if we switch from using, say, the US dollar, or the Canadian dollar over to, you know, using Bitcoin and Ethereum and these other cryptocurrencies, then we have more power over that. These are decentralized currencies. They're in the hands of the public. And, you know, we can decide how they're used and, and what have you. So I guess I would say that's kind of the the marketing pitch that's one of the ways or part of the way that it's framed um and we can of, of course discuss how accurate that is in practice great 
Bitcoin bros. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. And so and so like all of that is is a very simplistic way of explaining it. And then what really gets complicated is when you start trying to explain how. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. People start talking about like decentralized social networks. And of course, it's really hard to wrap your head around that because if you're not typing in Facebook.com, where are you going? How is it decentralized? And so my understanding is that because everything would be kind of sitting on top of a blockchain, and for anyone who doesn't understand what a blockchain is, think about LimeWire or, <laughs> or torrenting. It's just like something that exists because it exists on everybody's computer, and we all agree that it exists, and it would take the shutdown of basically the internet to make it disappear. Yeah, but to be clear, LimeWire and and those things and torrents are not blockchains. No, they're not. No, they're not. Um, <laughs> blockchain is like that in that um, it's all like shared and it exists because it's shared. But blockchain itself is. <laughs> I, I got to be honest, I'm really confused. Yeah. <laughs> Someone explain blockchain to me. <laughs> Um, so, so blockchain is like, so right now, uh, computers are based on traditional databases, right? So, you know, you can import information, you can remove information from that database. Um, and these databases can be held centrally. So, you know, I don't know, the government or a government department will have a database of information, and they kind of hold and control and administer that database control over that and, and editing power and all that is in their hands. Um, and the same would be said of large corporations and, and what have you. Um, the idea with the blockchain is that instead of it being held and controlled by this corporation, the blockchain is distributed among all of the computers that are managing the additions to the chain, basically. So, you know, you think of it like a chain and you're adding new blocks to the chain every single time it's updated. So you're never really removing information. You're just kind of adding new information on that can say, you know, disregard this older block or, or whatever. And that is done by a consensus mechanism between all of these different computers that determine when you're adding new information to this blockchain database and when you're removing it. And the idea is that, you know, rather it being centralized and, and in the hands of this like central authority, it is in all these different computers. So it's decentralized. So it's controlled by all these different users. And because it has that degree of kind of, uh, you know, it's spread out in that way, it's more secure, it's owned by people, it's more dependable and all these sorts of things. And again, um, you know, we can talk about whether that's the truth or not. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense, Kristen? That was actually a really good explanation. <laughs> I think so, but but let me try to to say what I heard in case I misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> so is it the case then that like the like sort of data that's out there would be like individual blocks, I guess maybe you would say, are on sort of different sources and they all make up like a holistic whole. So it's like sort of crowdsourced a little bit or there would there would still be kind of like um how would i put it all these all these blocks like you would still be able to see the full thing and the full blockchain database as i understand is still on each individual computer and there's like a you know way that the software ensures that they're all kind of in sync with one another does that make sense yeah it sounds like that would take a lot of data yeah, it takes a lot of energy, uh, as you might be surprised to learn. <laughs> it seems really inefficient, but I don't know anything about computers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it, it depends, right? Um, like, I think it's fair to say, and, you know, obviously I come in here as a skeptic and a critic, right? But I think it's fair to say that the blockchain isn't inherently like a bad thing. 
um, it can be put together in such a way that it's not as like environmentally harmful as it might sound. Often when we hear about cryptocurrencies and NFTs and things like that being really environmentally damaging and using a lot of energy, it's because of it's because that there are multiple different, you know, I said consensus mechanism, right? There there are different means to mine these uh you know various blocks to update the blockchain um and when it comes to these cryptocurrencies some of them use what's called proof of work um and that requires a really kind of intricate or a really difficult computer mathematical calculation that has to be done on all of these computers in order to update the blockchain and so that is when you hear that they're using a lot of energy because all of these different computers are kind of competing, you know, and using all these graphics cards, like really intense graphics cards that use a lot of energy in order to try to figure out the solution to this mathematical problem before any of the other computers, because then they'll get rewarded with like a cryptocurrency or, or whatever, because they have gotten the mathematical equation right. But that's not to say that there aren't other ways of updating these blockchains that are not as energy inefficient, but that doesn't mean that those other mechanisms don't come with other trade-offs. So one of the other big ones is proof of stake, which is really based on you know the amount of computing power that you have in the mix that you are contributing to updating these calculations or or whatever or updating the the blockchain or the ledger or you know all these different terms that they use and in that case you know it's not all these computers competing to you know solve this kind of really difficult mathematical equation first so it uses less energy but you know one of the things that's said about it is that it's often quite unequal right power is unequally distributed because if you are providing more of the computing resources in that scenario then you have you know more more power to determine what en ends up happening with the direction of the chain or or whatever right because it's based on how much computing power you're contributing and so if you have a lot of money if you have a lot of computing power you can you know kind of form a greater percentage of that and then the final thing i guess i would say about blockchain and certainly you can ask me more about it as well, is just that, you know, it, it's being presented as though it is inherently superior to a traditional database system because it has this kind of decentralized nature. And it's important to say, I think, that blockchains can, you know, a bank can just create their own blockchain as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be decentralized. And after all of the hype of the past few years, you know, there were a lot of big companies that were looking at moving things over to blockchains because, you know, there was a lot of hype around this. There was a lot of excitement around what it could be. There was a lot of narratives that this would be superior to a traditional database if we moved things over to it. And so, you know, you can see banking and transactions as being one of the potential use cases for something like that because you're just adding on the new transactions all the time to this blockchain, right? Each one is, is a new block or whatever. But a lot of these large organizations that were looking into it, that were even have blockchain projects in the works, kind of found that they were far less efficient, that they weren't actually providing much additional benefit to the traditional database model that they were using. And so they have largely abandoned these projects of moving over to the blockchain because it would have actually been a less efficient system. And again, the blockchain isn't a new thing. As you said, it's been in a lot of people's kind of attention. Like people have known about it more for the past 10 years or so, uh, you know, since Bitcoin was launched. But really, these sorts of database systems have been around for like 
30 years, as far as I understand it. Um, like it's not really a, a wholly new thing. And part of the reason it hasn't really been adopted at scale at this point is because it just wasn't workable in the way that a traditional database was. So just to circle back to like the energy consumption and like the the being hard on the planet, I would say that like ultimately the hardest part for the planet is that like computers are being run on energy grids that are not uh, based on renewable resources. And so they're drawing a lot of energy from that. Uh, so when people are talking about like, oh, cryptocurrency is really bad for the environment, it's like, it's not really cryptocurrency. It's it's our energy system, which is true of everything. It's just that cryptocurrency uses a lot of energy. And then um, on top of that is the need to constantly be upgrading your your computers uh, to make sure that you have the best of the best to be able to compute at the power level that you need. And so you're, you know, replacing parts of a computer before they need to be replaced. Yeah. So I would say it's a mix, right? Um, like, especially when we're looking at Bitcoin, which uses the proof of work means of mining, basically. So as you say, you know, because you're doing all these really difficult computer calculations, you are really churning through computer hardware. And that is one thing that we tend to forget or not think about, I think. So like, you know, they're really burning through these graphics cards and things really quickly. There's a lot of waste that comes out of this process, uh, like electronics waste. And, you know, as your listeners might be aware, might not be aware, we really don't have a good system for uh, recycling electronics right now. You know, they've probably seen the images of places in the global south where a lot of these electronics get shipped and are just kind of piled up and people kind of go through them and try to pick out parts that would, you know, make them a bit of money once they turn it into a recycler, but it's really environmentally harmful. Um, and so this is kind of accelerating that. The other piece I would say about it is that I don't I don't fully agree with the thing where it's only a problem because it's not renewable energy. What's happening in many of these cases, especially when we look at Bitcoin miners, is that they're providing a means to actually bring a lot of fossil fuel plants back online. We've seen that in Alberta. We've also seen it in parts of the United States. And what communities, like a lot of communities end up pushing back on this because, you know, it not only creates, you know, fossil fuels like local air pollution and things like that, but they can often be very loud, a lot of these plants. And so there's also a noise pollution element of it as well, which causes a lot of harm to communities, causes even like health uh, impacts for people because they're constantly hearing these kind of buzzing sounds and things like that. And the, the, the thing I would say about it as well is like, it's not just about whether it's renewable or fossil fuel energy, because when we think about what's going on right now, where we do have this transition that is kind of underway, where we're looking at electrifying a lot of, you know, different parts of society, whether it's vehicles or, or other things, you know, stoves are in the news at the moment, of course, electric stoves versus gas stoves. We do have a finite amount of energy. Maybe that's something that people don't always like to recognize or admit. And that bringing more renewable energy online still does take a lot of energy. It's going to take some time to scale up more renewable energy. But renewable energy also has, you know, resource inputs and things like that as well. There's still mining that goes into creating wind turbines and solar panels and all this sort of stuff. And the thing with cryptocurrencies is that they're very inefficient. The banking and like credit card system and payment system that we have right now is far more efficient than using cryptocurrency, the, like the cryptocurrency system. The amount of energy used for like a Visa or MasterCard transaction is just like so much lower um, than what it takes to process like a Bitcoin transaction or something like that, that like you can't even talk about it on the same scale. And so the issue there is that 
you know, a lot of these companies are, are kind of pushing us and promoting us to move over to this far less efficient system because, you know, it's profitable for them. It's, it's, you know, financially beneficial for them. But when we look at the kind of whole impact of that kind of a transition, it's, it's negative in, in virtually every other way. We haven't even gotten into the scams and things like that, that have been built on top of them yet as well. But yeah, I would say that's something that's really important to recognize is just how how deeply and inherently inefficient the payment system is and how, you know, in many cases, a lot of people have abandoned the notion that um, cryptocurrencies are just going to replace, uh, you know, the payment system that we have now because that's been recognized. But of course, not everyone would admit that. Some people would still say that, you know, like Pierre Polyev, for example, buying his uh, kebab at a shop in Toronto you know, would say that we're still moving in this direction. I think a lot of people would admit that's not the case, but certainly not everybody. And if we did, I think it would be harmful in, in many ways, and it would be moving toward a less efficient technology rather than a better one. Is the use case for blockchain really just about cryptocurrencies then, or are there other kinds of payments that... Not at all. That's actually what I wanted to get into next, which is we've talked a lot about cryptocurrencies, but that's actually not where Web 3.0 is going to go. From what I understand, cryptocurrency, I don't think is going to take off. Maybe I'm wrong. But ultimately, the really interesting and exciting things coming for Web 3.0 are other ways that you can decentralize other things, which is like, there's some stupid examples, like you could buy a pair of Nike sneakers online and then take them to different like platforms. I don't think that's actually a thing that's going to happen a lot because each of those platforms is going to be able, need to be able to support like the graphics for those sneakers or whatever. But what I think is kind of cool is the idea of like, my friend works for a, a, a Web 3.0 startup where they are going to be publishing books as NFTs. And the really cool thing about that, I think anyways, is when you buy that book, uh, you can read it and then you own it. Like that company cannot delete it from your Kobo or e-reader or whatever, the way the same way that like Amazon can delete stuff or Netflix can remove stuff from their, you know, you're paying for a streaming service and HBO takes away all of your favorite cartoon. And it's like, that won't happen because you'll own it. Okay. So it's like, I still buy Apple songs, <laughs> Web 1.0 style, maybe. Um, but it's like that, but not just owned by Apple is the idea. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then what could happen is you could turn around and sell that song to your friend and the artist, or in this case, like a book, you could sell that book to your friend or or you can lend it to someone. It's, I don't know, there's like all of these really complicated smart contracts that we're not going to get into. But basically, when you sell that product that you bought, the creator gets a royalty from it. Yeah. So uh, just the, what you were saying, Kristen, yeah, there are, are many different use cases for blockchains. They can be added to many different things. I would still say that when it comes to Web3, a lot of these uh, kind of ideas for how these uh, different companies and things are going to transform what we do, many of them are still kind of based on cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrency is still, in many of these visions, kind of a central mechanism through which these transactions are taking place. And then you can potentially move that money back to, you know, what they would say is fiat currency or, you know, what is known as fiat currency, which would be your US dollar, Canadian dollar, things like that. You know, I, I've certainly heard these ideas for, you know, books and various art being sold on uh, or being sold, you know, in these ways with smart contracts on the blockchain, all these sorts of things. You know, I'm very skeptical. Let me put it that way. Certainly when a lot of the media that we consume now 
moved online, there were also a lot of really positive narratives around what that was going to mean for artists and, you know, consumers and all these sorts of things, right? These, this kind of language always involves these, is always kind of built around these new technological shifts. I think people are used to this now. Every time the tech industry wants to sell us something, it's surrounded in this rosy language around uh, around how it's going to be like super empowering for us and how it's going to benefit everybody. And we never, ever hear about the downsides of it, right? Um, because that doesn't get brought into things because they don't want us to, to think about it in that way. And what we've seen is from the movement of content online that instead of actually buying physical things, instead of actually owning things, what we tend to buy when we purchase digital goods is a license to something. And now it's not inherent that this is the way that things have to work online. It's because there hasn't been proper regulation of how digital goods are sold and to ensure that um, you know, you actually own the digital goods that you buy rather than just having a license to them that can then be revoked at some time in the future. And so when I then hear, uh, you know, Web3 companies say, we are going to solve this problem through a techno fix rather than a regulatory or political fix, I'm not sure I really buy it, right? Because, you know, this is always how the tech industry sells its solutions to us. They always say these things are going to be beneficial to us. But then when I look at what these Web3 companies are proposing, it's an increase in the commercialization and, you know, it puts a price on more of the things that happen in our lives, basically. They're, see they're seeking to further um, commercialize more of the interactions that happen between us, to put more of a price on things that potentially didn't have a price before. And so I would say that, I don't see why we need smart contracts, why we need, you know, Web3 solutions to solve this fundamental problem. And the other, the final point I would make on that is that when digital goods were moving online in the past, again, it was very much promoted as something that was going to be good for writers or musicians or, or artists or what have you. You know, we saw the same with streaming services. Spotify was going to um, empower the, the musicians and Netflix was going to empower the filmmakers. And, you know, that is not actually how it played out in practice. Um, you know, the labels ended up making a lot of money from the transition to streaming because they are the ones who actually own the rights. Publishers have actually benefited from the move to ebooks. Um, but more than that, Amazon has actually been the one who's benefited immensely from that. And as we've moved to streaming, that has further empowered, you know, the entertainment monopolies the entertainment companies because they are the ones who actually own the intellectual property around all these things so now if we're talking about a move to web3 services that are going to you know create new ways to to buy and sell these things and it's promoted as though it's going to be great for all these creators and and you know is going to kind of take down the big corporate monopolies that that benefit right now you know i'm not really i'm not really buying it yeah i wonder if you can give me an example of like a web three company and, and what they're proposing to do. You mean other than the NFT books, Kristen? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't fundamentally buy NFTs. Yeah. I think they're a scam. So. I think Paris, maybe you have a better example, but I think, I think most Web 3.0 companies, you know, books aside, are in the video game space and are basically trying to create marketplaces within their game system 
whereby, like, let's say I love playing Pokemon Go in theory, and, <laughs> and, I, and I buy like a digital hat for my little character. I could then turn around, like, because I own that hat, I could turn around and sell it to somebody else if it was like a limited edition hat. Yeah. So this is certainly one of the concepts that's put out there. You know, there's been no real successful Web3 game or anything so far. One that you've probably heard about is Axie Infinity was probably the most successful of these crypto uh, Web3 games. You know, that had a huge hack or, or whatever you want to call it last year. People lost a lot of money. And even then, a lot of people who played the game admitted that they didn't actually play the game because it was fun and they enjoyed it but rather because they were hoping to make a profit off of playing the game. And it's like, you know, is that kind of the incentive that you want built into video games? You know, I would think not. But <laughs> but then, like, if we if we kind of broaden out from that to pick up on what you were saying, a lot of these ideas for what video games can be in future are certainly linked to this concept of the metaverse that's been promoted in the past couple of years. And that is also inspired by games like Fortnite, right? Or Roblox, where you have these people who are all playing these kind of collective games are going online with one another and can buy various uh, weapons or, you know, uh, clothing items or whatever for their, for their avatars, for their players. The, the idea then that is promoted by kind of Web3 companies is that, you know, instead of just having this item in your one Fortnite game or whatever, you could buy an NFT that this item is create, is linked to, and then you'll be able to transfer this item from Fortnite over to Roblox, over to Overwatch, and these various other games that, you know, will be kind of built into this ecosystem. So that's how this is promoted. So we'll create this whole big marketplace of uh, digital goods that you'll be able to buy and sell that will kind of represent your avatar that you can build out maybe a home space with, which is part of Facebook's um, metaverse pitch. Can I just jump in for a second and talk about how much I hate this? Like, I just, <laughs> like, here's the thing. If I'm a video game developer, which I'm not, so, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but if I'm a video game developer, I would, in theory, hope that my main goal is to develop a good game rather than to develop a game where, oh, this sword from another fucking game needs to also <laughs> function in the game that I'm creating, which is where I'm like, I like Mark Zuckerberg is wrong and I hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I think it's terrible. And I think an unfortunate thing, of course, is that we've seen the video games industry move more and more in this direction, right? More and more toward toward these open world games, toward these online games, toward microtransactions, toward trying to get you to buy things just to kind of, you know, move forward in your game to do better in your game. And a lot of this does come out of, uh, just to a certain degree, uh, mobile games and that business model, right? A lot of these companies, when the iPhone was launched, there were a number of companies that launched games for mobile platforms. And instead of, you know, you just paying what 20 bucks, 30 bucks to buy a game and to play it on your phone, it was free to play, but then you kind of bought a bunch of things during playing the game so that you could continue to move through it, right? And this turned out to be a very profitable business model. And so now, you know, the games companies are trying to build that into more and more of like the console and PC games that you would play because they see the potential for a lot more revenue 
Um, and, you know, some people enjoy that. Other people would say, you know, this is really ruining the experience of playing because in order to really benefit, in order to really move forward, in order to really be competitive, I got to be spending all this extra money in order to do that, right? I think that's part of what these Web 3.0 companies are trying to, like what they would say that they're trying to fix in building these marketplaces where instead of constantly having to be creating new content for people to buy, you could create more interesting content for people to buy that then they sell amongst themselves on a marketplace and you profit from as being like the facilitator. Like Metaverse Etsy or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And like, and like you, you get like a, a royalty every time someone sells, uh, you know, the Pokemon Go hat that I bought. Um, and so you don't have to be constantly making new content for people to buy because it's, it, it can just exist in the finite world that you've created. Like, let's say you have this special sword in the game and only three of them were ever created. Those are going to have a lot of value. Yeah, so that's certainly one way that they would promote it. Um, I would say, you know, when you create these markets, there's always an incentive in the markets to grow them, right? To increase sales that are happening in the markets. And so once you create it, you're not going to be, you know, happy with reducing the sales of digital goods that happen. You're going to want to keep increasing them year on year, right? And so I would just add a few things to what you're saying there, right? First of all, when it comes to you know, having these items, especially if you want to transfer them between games, then you're requiring every single game developer to reskin this this uh, good to work in various different games, right? And so there's a lot of extra labor that's created if there's going to be a lot of these various, you know, digital items that are going to be transferred between a bunch of different games, unless there's a common kind of graphic style to all the games. And then you're really taking away a lot of the creative freedom of the developers, of the game makers. And so I don't think we really want that. So, and that really kind of bridge hasn't been crossed. I haven't seen anyone say how we're actually going to make this workable. The other piece of this is if you do want to sell all these goods and and make it work in this way, the reality is that you don't actually need NFTs for that. Um, you don't need blockchains for that. You don't need cryptocurrencies for that. There are already systems in place that can have this work perfectly fine uh, with traditional means. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That are like not like if I try to explain this to like my grandma's a pretty smart lady, but like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that there's such a huge barrier to entry for web 3.0 that I think, you know, people who are really in favor of it, I think will recognize that you have to own like a you have to own like a blockchain wallet and <laughs> if you want to make transactions, you have to be able to write your own code and just, and like if you want to build a web 3.0 like company or game, it's just the barrier to entry is so high. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like capitalism will fix that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's been like, it's been like 13 years and I still like. (laughs) Yeah, it it makes it difficult, right? Because like, you know, I I can't remember who said it to me now, but someone was like, if I'm talking about building a whole new financial system, I'm going to want my grandmother to actually understand how it works, right? My grandparents understand how a bank works. They understand that if they put their money in the bank, it's basically protected there and if anything happened to the bank there's insurance on the bank so you know if their money was lost they would get it back right because the government has insurance on banks 
But then if we talk about moving money over to cryptocurrency wallets, it becomes much more difficult to figure out how that system works because it's much more complex. You're also expected then to kind of develop personal security around your own money because you basically become your own bank. And like, do I expect grandparents and just generally not very technologically savvy people to be able to do that? No, I don't. And I don't think the security of their money should depend on their ability to figure that out, right? That just opens the space for for grifters, right? Which is what we're seeing <laughs> totally. in, in the cryptocurrency. Which is space. exactly what we see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there has to be there has to be a platform in the middle which is like the opposite of decentralized. <laughs> yeah. So I don't understand how it's gonna work. <laughs> totally. And the thing is here too, right? Is Often it's it's very reductively framed as though, especially when we're talking about the money piece of this, that the traditional banking system has a lot of problems. You know, it's deeply flawed in many ways. So that means the solution is to move over to cryptocurrencies and Web3 and all this sort of stuff, right? The reality is that that's not the only choice that we have. And often when technological fixes to problems are presented, they don't tend to actually solve the problem um, when we you know, look at the effects of that. We can advocate for a public banking system, for regulations on the banking system that actually address some of these problems that we recognize exist. You know, Web3 and, and its promoters don't offer this as an option for us. But if we actually did want a banking system that serves the public, that serves the public goals or, or what have you, that um, is less oriented around profit making and extracting fees from us, but you know, is is oriented around the things that we would want a banking system to do, you know, we're not going to get that through Web3 and, and what that's proposing. We're going to get that through a public banking system that's properly regulated and that's run in the interest of the public. And that's an inherently political thing, right? It's not a technological thing. Web 3.0 kind of feels like a bunch of, like... I it it sounds very communist, which I love, but <laughs> I, I think it actually sounds hyper-capitalist, but that's just me. It's pricing everything. It's like a libertarian hyper-capitalism. It's, it's true. It's true. And like, and it's just sometimes the way it's described, it's like they're trying to sell it, but they're using like really leftist terms. And you're like, oh, that exactly. sounds good. Yep. But then when you actually look at it, it's actually a bunch of libertarian tech bros trying to buy an island in the middle of the ocean <laughs> and set up their own laws. <laughs> No, you like you've nailed it. <laughs> you know, that, that's really what it is. Like it's using this really kind of progressive framing around something that is actually really deeply libertarian and about extending capitalist relations into more aspects of society. Um, because how does you know capitalism grow? How does it expand? It needs to keep finding new areas to move into. Um, and that is what I would argue is essentially what Web3 is doing, right? It's finding more avenues to extend, you know, capitalist relations, to uh, extend commerce into that don't currently, you know, exist in that way right now. And we see that time and time again with the tech industry, right? Like if we look back to the sharing economy, it was like, okay, these are things that you might do for your neighbor. Um, you know, you might lend them a tool or you might, you know, do something else for them. Well, instead of this being a non-commercial relationship that you have with your community, aspects of, of this whole sector were basically like, let's turn that into a transaction. Let's put a price on it. And, you know, this app will enable us to do it. 
you know, certainly that wasn't the extent of the whole sector, but that was part of the companies. And that's why it was promoted as the sharing economy, because it was like things that you would usually do that you would associate with sharing um, that were now commercializing. Right. Uh, And so time and time again, uh, the tech industry does these sorts of things. On the other hand, I do really like the idea of, I think something that libertarians and I agree on, maybe the only thing is that there is too much power that's... Oh, I thought you were going to say weed legalization. But... <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. Okay, so two. Th- I agree we already with got that. Yeah, two <laughs> things. Two things. But like the idea that like the the power is too centralized right now. There's too much um, kind of funneling up to the top, and so the idea of getting that into the hands of more people, I can understand why that's so appealing. Oh, absolutely. I get that for the tech space, but like to me, like the whole purpose of money is that it's centralized. We all agree that it has a set value. And like, if we're all just like, if we're decentralizing currency, that like central social fact seems to break down. I just don't understand that. I completely agree. Like what I was going to say is just like, you know, we're at a time when inequality is kind of soaring and we have these massive kind of monopolistic companies. So it's understandable that people want uh, something to be done about that. And I just don't think that Web3 is actually the solution, right? It's presenting um, you know, what looks like a solution is using the rhetoric that people expect. But I think what we'd actually see if we moved in that direction is just a new set of kind of corporations that are that are profiting off us. And just to pick up on what Kristen was saying, like, you know, we didn't always have centralized currencies. We didn't always have national currencies that were backed up by central banks and that were controlled by governments in this way. And when we look at the history in the United States, in the UK and other parts of the world where we had competing currencies that multiple, you know, different organizations were putting out there, what we found was that it increased the risks of recession, of people losing money. It made the financial system less stable, right? And so there's a reason why we actually adopted national currencies, why we put in the system of currencies that we have. Um, It was because it was deemed to be more stable. It was because, you know, it made it so that people were less likely to lose their money, to to lose everything with these kind of fluctuations, you know, in, in the currency system and in the economy. Yeah, like centralization isn't always a bad thing. That's that's my Yeah. <laughs> it can be a really good thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, like I I think I think the the debate especially when it comes to technology is far too reductive and it assumes that decentralization is an inherent good when that doesn't necessarily mean that power is decentralized at the end of the day, right? There are many different forms of decentralization. Technological decentralization doesn't actually mean that you have like political decentralization or that power kind of moves down to the hands of the public or something like that. Like one thing that we do see in cryptocurrency markets, for example, when we see like mining and things like that, you know, when people talk about mining cryptocurrencies, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin or or these various currencies, or when they talk about DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, and all these, you know, sorts of things, is that these are presented as things where, you know, power is decentralized, where mining is done by a whole load of different people. And so this means that there's not a risk of centralization anymore, or, you know, that risk is kind of allayed somehow. But what we actually see when we look at that is that there are large mining conglomerates that control a significant amount of the mining that happens in in managing and controlling these cryptocurrencies or we look at the exchanges that people you know hold their cryptocurrency in or where people make cryptocurrency transactions um, and those are also very centralized organizations right 
you know, certainly venture capitalists weren't putting money into the industry because they wanted to challenge the power of corporate players. They saw an opportunity to make money. And certainly they were able to do that because it was really easy to cash out uh, crypto tokens and things like that quickly when they, you know, quickly kind of jumped up in value when they were um, released publicly or investing in these companies when there was a big kind of hype bubble um, and then getting out before or trying to get out before everything crashed down once again. Um, You know, this is just kind of a cycle in the tech industry. There's always a new thing, a, a new exciting product that is going to revolutionize everything significantly improve society and then doesn't always end up doing that at the end of the day and you know i would say that web3 is kind of just another example in that continuum certainly they built a big kind of um, narrative around itself you know there's web 1.0 2.0 and now we're building 3.0 and it's going to be you know empowering and decentralized and amazing in all these ways and certainly they didn't want you to look at the ways that it was going to allow uh, companies to profit you know, to, to make money at, at our expense, because that is doesn't really fit in with the narrative that they're selling. And it certainly wouldn't get people on side if that was um, what people knew they were they were building. So if I'm not looking to deal with cryptocurrency, and I don't play video games, can I just ignore Web3? <laughs> well, Kristen, um, that actually, we're, we're getting to the end here, but there's two actually other things that we didn't even touch on that maybe Paris, you'll grace us with a little bit more of your time to, to go over a little bit here. But the idea of a decentralized social network, I think, is another big Web3 talking point, which is that you would own your data on this social network. And I have a hard time wrapping my head around a social network where like, I guess, I guess more like MySpace, like you've built your own little page and people can find you. But then like, I I don't see how that helps artists with like discovery. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Totally. You know, I think there are a lot of issues. And obviously, I think different companies or different groups have different proposals for what this would look like in practice, right? But kind of one of the ideas is that the social media platform itself would be much more commercialized and monetized. And and this would often be done through cryptocurrencies. And so you would be able to kind of tip people for their posts or pay for access to premium posts, forms of commercialization and, and abilities to pay people and buy things would be built in at a much more kind of fundamental level in that social media platform. And I think that there's an open question as to whether that would actually be a good thing, whether that would improve kind of the interactions that happen on these platforms or whether it builds in more kind of negative incentives where you're trying to, you know, get a big post because then people will kind of tip you or give you money or subscribe to your membership profile or or whatever, right? The other thing I would say about this, and I talked to Molly White about this, she runs a website called uh, Web3 is going just great that kind of chronicles you know, a lot of the realities, a lot of the scams, a lot of the problems with the industry. And one of the things that she pointed out to me is if you have a social media platform that is on the blockchain, and the blockchain is a public ledger, right? It's not a private thing. You can look up everything that is on the blockchain. Then if this is kind of the foundation for your social media platform, then if you ever make a post that you come to regret later you know maybe you're <gasps> oh my drunk goodness. or something like that <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> you might delete it off your public timeline but it's always still visible in the blockchain or maybe 
you didn't even post it. Maybe you have a stalker or a harasser and they kind of dox you online or they post something on this platform that you don't like. This is always recorded in the public blockchain. You can't remove it because that is the way that a blockchain is built. Um, and so this builds in a lot of potential for harassment, for attacks, for doxing, for sharing someone's nude photos, whatever. And this can never be removed. And this is, again, something that I've never seen uh, the people who promote these ideas effectively explain how they were how they were going to like ensure it didn't happen. Because really, if you're building it on a blockchain, there's no way to address that problem. Sounds horrific. Existing social media platforms have a really big problem with child pornography and like have to employ people to constantly remove that. You just wouldn't be able to do that. It would be out there forever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you could hide it from the public website, but it would always be on the blockchain because nothing, as we were talking about, you just constantly add new blocks onto the blockchain, but old blocks are never actually removed. So those old blocks contain containing the child pornography or whatever other content we're talking about would never actually be removed from the blockchain. All right. I'm moving to a cabin in the woods. That's <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up that point, Paris. I didn't even think about it while I was putting this together. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, there are problems with a lot of these things. <laughs> the last talking point for supporters of Web 3.0 would say, like, the Internet of Things is going to really take off with Web 3. And I... I what I <laughs> have you ever read? So, so with the Internet of Things, it's it's the idea that your items are connected to the internet, which is already kind of a a thing that we're finding creepy. I I, I think most of the people who have like a an Amazon Alexa or a Google you know smart speaker in their homes, like a lot of my friends, are starting to just turn them off now. So the idea that your fridge would like make your shopping list for you. I don't think many people find appealing. <laughs> but but this is a talking point for people who want to sell us on web3. So like how would the internet of things connect to web3? Like what what what's what's the selling point here? I don't get it. Yeah, it's interesting how the internet of things has evolved. Like previously that was more of a commercial term as in something that would happen like within firms or, or companies to connect more of what was going on in like factories or warehouses to the internet, right? And now you see it deployed in this more kind of commercial or a more kind of uh, consumer facing way. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't really get it either. Like, I think part of the idea with some of this stuff is that like, as you said earlier, you might buy a pair of like Nike shoes and there is an NFT connected to those shoes so that then you know, because you're wearing your shoes in the real world, you can wear them in whatever digital game or whatever is allowing these. Oh. Why is this appealing to people? I don't get it. <laughs> Kristen, you just aren't, you're just too old, Kristen. I'm sure Zoomers and I'm Alphas sure will true. love it. Yeah. <laughs> Sne sneakers are a great example because sneakers are like a currency onto themselves. We need to talk to Abdul Malik some more about like the sneaker market. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I, I think that that is part of what's being promoted there. Um, and certainly, you know, last year in particular and, and through um, 2021, there was a lot of excitement about, you know, how all of these things were going to be integrated together, how this was going to connect to Web3 and NFTs and the metaverse and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I really just feel like this, that excitement has really kind of dried up in the past number of months in particular. Um, you know, 
cryptocurrency prices, you know, Ethereum, Bitcoin, things like that, they really peaked in November of 2021. And leading up to that moment from like, you know, a, a few months after COVID hit um, through to November 2021, like the excitement around um, crypto and NFTs and Web3 was really at a fever pitch and just kept kind of increasing and increasing and increasing, right? But then once the prices maxed out, and especially in early 2022, when they had declined a certain amount, and it was clear that, you know, they were headed toward a more steady decline, um, a lot of this excitement started to dry up. The values of cryptocurrencies and NFTs were declining, trading volumes were declining. Um, and then what we saw through 2022 was a series of collapses of increasingly large players in the cryptocurrency space. Um, so Three Arrows Capital or Celsius or the Terra Luna collapse or FTX more recently. And the each one of these collapses then had a contagion effect where it took down smaller players too. And so all of the kind of hype and excitement that was built up around this sector through that kind of year, year and a half period of time has really significantly evaporated. Now, a lot of people you know, certainly who work at some of these companies who are really into the industry, who really bought into it would say, you know, this is just a temporary disruption, but, you know, all these things are going to kind of come back and, you know, it's not dead. But personally, I see it as, you know, the tech industry needed a thing to rally around, especially in this period, something to present as its next big thing that was going to transform everything we do. And Web3 and the metaverse filled that space. And I think what we see now is a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of kind of just people in the tech industry have really moved on from that vision um, because they've recognized that it's really not happening in the way that they promised. And now, you know, they're they're kind of pivoting. AI is their next big thing um, and all that that potentially means for us. Some of them are moving into health technology in a greater degree. And so, you know, I think a lot of these kind of tech people have left behind the vision that uh, cryptocurrencies and Web3 were going to really kind of revolutionize the web and everything we do online and are now looking for their next big thing to promote as, you know, the technology that's going to completely change and upend everything that we do in our lives. And, you know, I guess we'll see how that works out. I'm, I'll, I'll continue to be skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just waiting for the next iPhone, you know? Like... Yeah, totally. <laughs> And, you know, they're telling us, especially in the past year or two, they were telling us that VR headsets and augmented reality glasses were going to be the next iPhone, right? Because we were just going to put the computers on our faces instead of looking down at our phones and screens and things like that. And people hate wearing VR headsets, uh, especially for any amount of time. And they've proven unable to shrink the computers enough to put them on a set of glasses. And it doesn't look like they're going to succeed in doing that anytime soon. Kristen, do you do you feel satisfied with <laughs> I mean, I came in not knowing what Web3 was at all, but being very skeptical of like NFTs and cryptocurrency. And I remain very skeptical of NFTs and cryptocurrency, but but now I feel like I know how they fit together, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I I think the conversation is important. I think it's important for people to understand why this need feels like so desired by people. But 
I don't think it's the ultimate solution. I would love to wear glasses instead of my phone. I have such terrible like shoulder pain from like hunching over my phone all the time. So like, <laughs> I, you know, I, probably the next thing that's going to happen is we're just going to put a chip in our brains. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk would love to have you do that. He's been killing a ton of monkeys in pursuit of it. So. <laughs> Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Kristen, before I um, say goodbye to us? Just the like on the Internet of Things topic, I would really recommend to people Cory Doctorow's Radicalized. He's got a short yes. story in there about yeah. basically a company that has a partnership with a landlord that controls toasters and people who fight back against them. And it's very fun. Yeah, because you can only buy one certain brand of toast to put in your toaster and it won't toast other bread. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's so good. It's basically taking what happens now with, you know, printers, you know, you can only buy certain inks that will work with it and expanding it to like more, you know, of the things that exist in our lives as these digital technologies, you know, as all of our appliances get computers built into them and things like that, right? Like you have a lamp that can only have certain bulbs or yeah. whatever, you know, like it, you could do it with anything. And the, the idea of doing it with toasters and bread is just it's so comical and yet also <laughs> so real. Yeah, just basic staple, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't need my fridge to talk to me, you know? <laughs> this is the next way that Loblaws and Galen Weston fix the price of bread is to make our toasters. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Paris. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on this topic? You know, as as I said early on, like it's very clear that I'm a skeptic of of this stuff. Uh, you know, I certainly didn't didn't buy into it. I, I think it's important that we have these kind of conversations where we try to look kind of clear eyed at what these various industries, whether it's the tech industry or whatever else, are trying to sell us for the future, because they will always kind of present things in a rosy and, and very positive way to get the public to buy into them. But that doesn't mean that that's ultimately what they're going to deliver. And I think that we have a growing kind of body of evidence that this is how things work in the tech sector. You know, they they hire really great, really well-paid PR people to sell us visions of what their technologies and their products can mean for us and our societies. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's ultimately what they uh, actually do when the technologies hit the real world. And so, yeah, we always need to kind of be aware of those things. Thank you so much. I've listened to a lot of like podcast episodes about people trying to explain Web 3.0. And I don't think anyone has done as concise and good a job as you have, Paris. So thank you so much for joining us to explain this. And <laughs> we really appreciate you. For anyone who wants to get more of Paris, you share the Harbinger Media Network with us. People can find you on Tech Won't Save Us, one of my favorite shows. I listen to every episode. So thank it's you. Very, <laughs> it's very exciting for me. I'm like, I'm like fangirling over here. <laughs> and uh, and you've just launched a new newsletter as well that people can can find you at Substack, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah. It's called Disconnect. You know, it's continuing the the criticism and critical takes on technology, just uh, moving it into a different form. And we're going to link to that. And we'll also link to uh, one of our favorite books that we read last year, which is written by yourself. And it's called <laughs> Road to Nowhere. And it's basically 200 pages of talking about how terrible Elon Musk is. And we're here for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's what everyone loves. Get ready to be angry about cars. <laughs> oh, I hate cars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially after the, the Twitter takeover. I think people are even more, you know, looking for some anti-Elon Musk content. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
and you won't find it on Twitter anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did sell the book as like a, but you only, you only take a few pot shots and only where it's deserved. Most of the book is talking about the future of transportation and what would really improve transportation and save the planet, which Kristen and I are here for. So (laughs) perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. We'll catch you on the next episode.